This recording is a production of Faith Builders. This presentation was recorded at Teachers Week 2013, held at Faith Builders on August 6 through 9. Reasons students don't like school and what you can do about it. I think we all relate to this at some point, at some level. Humor often expresses what is real, albeit by exaggeration. But this is a real problem, right? Because According to one source, 40 to 60% of students are chronically disengaged from school. That's one half of students. Now, I'm sure it's different in Mennonite schools, right? Because we all love the Lord and His creation and all truth is God's truth, and so we're all excited about it, right? But perhaps you have at least one student who professes to not like school. Now, I'm not going to ask how many of you liked school, because I assume all of you did. Um, most teachers do, and can't understand why others don't. But I am going to ask how many of you remember a great teacher that you feel dramatically impacted your life. Ah, uh-huh, okay, thank you. And how many of you remember a bad teacher who dramatically impacted your life? Ah, uh-huh, thank you. So ultimately, these 10 points today and tomorrow are about your power as a teacher to make or break your student's school experience and maybe their life. Not that you're the be-all, end-all in your students' lives, but you do have power, responsibility, and a privilege to help them enjoy school which is actually a part of real life. Now, most commercials end with fine print, but I'm going to start with that because there are some things you need to understand before we get started today. First of all, don't feel the need to copy all of the subpoints word for word uh, and everything you see on the screen, okay? I don't have a special handout for you today for my magic carpet uh, because it isn't a magic formula. Uh, there are there is space provided in your notes for you to take notes. And I suggest that you view these points more as areas to develop in and write down what is important to you, what you connect with or what you would like to work on. Put things in your own words. Write something that means something to you, not just copying everything that you see on the screen. Second point in the fine print. Because I'm talking to teachers, The points are mostly things that I feel teachers could have influence over. So don't be offended if if it sounds like I think we're not doing well enough, because the point is to challenge ourselves as teachers to grow, not to blame others for why our students don't care about school. And fine point number three, it's not an exhaustive list. For instance, um, not enough recess, etc. There are a lot of other things that I could have put on here, uh, which is actually a real problem in public schools today. They're doing less recess because of standardized testing and they end up shooting themselves in the foot because the students don't do as well in the test because they don't have as much recess. And it's a vicious cycle, but we'll let the president take, important, uh, take care of these important issues and move on to the next fine print point, which is perhaps the most important one that I'm purposefully skipping, and that is what is known as the elephant in the room. And that is compulsory schooling. 
That is, students have to go to school, okay? And most people don't enjoy something as much when they have to do it. So, this is a given for all of us, and we could discuss this endlessly like all political issues. But understand that these 10 points are inside of this context, that we're all on the same page here. We have to go to school for 180 days, or you're aware of what it is from where you're from. So, um, imagine what you would feel like if uh, you were told you had to teach for the next 12 years. Um, <clears throat> that would be a lot for some people. Imagine how preachers must feel when we say, okay, now you're a preacher, you're stuck there. Do you think they enjoy it? If they didn't pick it, I don't know, you'll have to ask them. Uh, do you think they can learn to enjoy it even if they didn't choose to become a preacher? And so can teachers enjoy teaching even when it's hard? Can students enjoy learning even when they don't want to be there? These are the questions we're going to try to uh, work on. And this is related to fine point number five. We live in a fallen world. So this means that every minute of life or work that we do is not always enjoyable. Um, this, we have to take out the garbage, brush our teeth, and do other menial tasks. And so um, not, don't expect every moment of school to be extremely exciting bouncing off the walls. But the kingdom is present here and now, and so we live in this tension between what we have to do and what we love to do. And so ultimately it's about learning to love what we have to do or what we're called to do. And education, of course, is not just about changing our minds but changing our loves, which of course are related. And this is similar to the process of redemption in that it doesn't happen all at once. It's gradual, so don't expect to change things in your school um, overnight. Bang. It's a gradual process to be more excited about life and to be redeemed. So, finally, these ten points aren't a dream formula to get them to love every moment of school because we can't. And furthermore, if we made it only fun, we might end up losing our real focus because growth often comes with pain or at least hard work. So here we go. Ten reasons your students don't like school and what you can do about it. Reason number one, thinking is hard work. Here's a quote from Henry Ford. Thinking is the hardest work there is, which is the probable reason why so few people engage in it. So here's something for you to think about. I have a bottle glass, narrow, and I have a pen cap, which I will put in the bottle. Whoops. I'm not nervous. Okay, I will put it in the bottle, and it's going to stay there until you figure out, think, tell me, how to get the pen cap out of the bottle. Now, there are three rules. First, you may not touch the bottle. You may not break the bottle. And you may not move the bottle or the earth that it's sitting on. Okay, anybody have an answer so far? Yeah? Can't hear you. 
Yeah, can you tell me? You can't move the bottle. Can't pick it up, can't turn it. You could tell me to. But I'm not allowed to do that either. Yes? Oh. <laughs> wow, we got there already. Okay. Excellent. So, for those of you that would like to see this, you may not touch it, and this isn't a good thing to do on top of an overhead projector when you're nervous. But eventually it will come up, and you'll be able to get it out the top. Without touching the bottle, moving it. Right. Okay, excellent. Somebody is good at thinking here. Um, thinking is hard work. You see, the brain is not designed to think. Really? Uh, what I mean by this is it's designed to save you from having to think or reprocess in order to save time if every time you go to throw a softball you have to think, okay, so square up, put shoulder back. And, Come on, throw it to first. We need to get him out. Now, wait, I got And then I have to remember what my coach said. And then we go, okay. So your brain is designed to make things processes so that you don't have to think every time you try to do something in life. In fact, someone has said most of the time what we do is what we do most of the time. So the brain spends most of its power or neurons on automated processes. You see, it takes more neurons to see than it does to compute 9 times 9. So, can you see this pen up here? Yeah, okay. But seeing doesn't usually tire our brains as much. So why is it, you know, you can, Johnny, can you see the pen? Yeah, he can see it. Johnny, what's 9 times 9? Ah, uh, I don't know. Okay. It takes less brain power to compute 9 times 9 than it does to see the pen. But he can't figure out 9 times 9. Seeing doesn't usually tire our brains because we operate mostly off of memory. And this is why traveling, incidentally, is so tiring, as most of you are doing this week. Um, it's stressful. We have to constantly make new decisions in an unfamiliar place that we're used to taking for granted. Your toothbrush, for instance. Anybody want to volunteer? Anybody forget your toothbrush this week? Uh, okay, uh, it happens, right? Uh, that's you're used to your toothbrush just being right there, and in an unfamiliar place, it's stressful. Uh, vacation can be stressful because we're not as familiar with it, and so this is also why learning can be tiring because it's uh, hard work. So we end up having to fight for space. So really, what I'm trying to say here is that unless the conditions are right, we will avoid hard thinking. Your students aren't just looking forward to coming into your class, raring to go, yeah, give me some hard work today, um, throw it at me, you know. If you don't do your job as a teacher, I'll take responsibility into my own hands. I'll read the textbook through and I'll figure it out all myself. Somehow, we have to get them excited about it because naturally thinking is hard work. Now, um, going on. Thinking takes time. Thinking is actually a process, literally, of making new connections in your brain, of connecting the synapses. 
and this is tiring or taxing. And we also have problems with um, distractions that come up because your brain cells are actually sort of like cell phones cells. And your brain cells wirelessly sort of communicate with each other and any kind of interruption into that reduces productivity. So you know how hard it is to have a conversation on a cell phone when your service is going in and out. And when you resume the service in the conversation, uh, where were we? It's hard to get back on track and be productive. And maybe you've heard about the studies that show that phone calls, etc., cetera, um, that interrupt office workers reduce their productivity. Even if you check your email every five minutes or answer the phone every couple minutes, you really can't get to a highly productive creative stage. So thinking is hard work. It takes time. If we're going to be engaged and productive in thinking, we need to have the time to do it. Another reason thinking is hard work is because we dislike, generally, what is difficult. Now, people are different here. Some people like to think. Some people count steps as they go up, go up them. And, uh, but generally, we dislike what is difficult. It might be because it's new. I've, ne uh, I've never seen it. You know, I like to learn more history because I already know history. See, I I'm not as good as ca calculus, and so I'm not really excited about learning calculus because I don't know much about it. That's where we, what we naturally tend to do and be. And so your students are this way. If it's something new, uh, in a sense, you need to sell it to them. It could also be over their head. It's over my head, so I don't like it. So it's too, I'm not going to engage my brain. We need to ask ourselves, did they master the background knowledge for what we're expecting them to learn and know right now? Um, for instance, you can't ask big, important questions about the implications of the Boston Tea Party if they don't know the basic facts about the Boston Tea Party. So sometimes we assume that they know more than they know. Sometimes uh, it's too easy. So it's no wonder people don't enjoy school if their work is either too hard or too easy. And of course, grading and ages can be a problem here because students aren't always working at their optimum level. We tend to move them through uh, school in batches of their date of manufacture, and then we end up having problems working with people who are at different places within those ages, believe it or not. But we need to figure out how to work with that. So that being said, thinking is hard work. What do we do about it? Stop thinking? Well, I suggest we encourage thinking. Be sure that there are problems to be solved, something to engage the student. And I'm not just talking about a question or a cute pen in the bottle trick at the beginning, which can be good, but even deeper than that, guiding questions in the lesson for the day, like understanding a work of literature and discussing it, asking questions to help us understand it today, or in math, how to find the surface area of a silo. Surface area, okay. That's a difficult one. If you're not working with something to engage them, something practical, they really don't care about surface area. If it's 
uh, finding the surface area of something that they care about, they're more likely to engage their brain. Sometimes we are so eager to get to the answers that we don't spend sufficient time developing the question. So examine your lesson plan. Is it full of your info or are there problems for them to engage with and time planned for them to do it? Is the teacher doing all the doing, thinking and talking, causing the students to zone out? Which leads to our next point. In order to encourage thinking, we need to have space to think. We can't overload the working memory and expect them to get it into their long-term memory. So slow the pace, use visual aids, have them interact with their peers. This will engage them and get them thinking. Demonstrations, many other things that you can think of to engage them. Another th point is respect students' cognitive limits. I already referred to this in um, the Boston Tea Party. Don't assume that they have background knowledge that they don't. Don't bore them with details that they already know. And don't stretch them above what they can do. Okay, now how do you do that? One little idea would be before you're going to start a new unit, give them a little pre-test, a little pre-quiz. What do you already know about this, that, the other thing? Studies show that one of the one mistake the teachers tend to make is that they go into lessons clueless about what their students already know about it or don't know about it and therefore we violate one of the seven laws of teaching in that in order to teach we must know what the student already knows and we must connect with that in order for learning to occur. And last, change the pace. Know when to stay quiet, when and when not to interrupt, when to change the pace by moving on, asking a deeper question, etc. Um, we need to give them space to think, but I'm not just talking about putting them in the room and closing the door and saying, okay, think. Okay, so on the one side, they can't think if I'm doing all of the talking. On the other side, they can't think if they're in an empty room with four walls, expected to think and come up with great things. So you need to know when to talk, when to be quiet, when to encourage questions, etc. So now we're ready for reason number two. And before we to introduce number two, I'd like to look at a study conducted by George and Beth at Breakpoint and Beyond, in which they tested 1,600 kindergarten children aged three to five. They gave them eight tests on divergent thinking. And now we need to talk about what divergent thinking is. Well, this isn't the same as uh, creativity and curiosity, which I'll talk about in a little bit, but it's sort of a way, an understood way, to measure it to measure creativity and genius. You know, we all think of Einstein as a genius, right? So a sample test would be, how many uses can you think of for a paperclip? An average person might come up with 10 or so. A genius might come up with 200 or so. And if you're wondering how to get 200 reasons, 
or 200 ways to use a paperclip, they do this by doing, asking unusual questions like, well, could the paperclip be 200 feet tall and made out of foam? Still a paperclip, right? You didn't say what kind of paperclip, what size of paperclip, what type of material the paperclip was made out of. You just said a paperclip. And so creative people think creatively about ways to use a paperclip. So they uh, tested these people and called them creative geniuses if, if they could come up with 200 reasons or 200 ways to use a paperclip or other things like that. There were eight different tests. Now, they tested these kindergartners and some of them scored within the creative genius category, okay? You know, almost an Einstein. What percent of these kindergartners do you think scored in this category? Anybody? Five? A little bit higher. 98% scored within the creative genius category, okay? Hmm. Now, you can see where this is going. What if we go a little bit older? All right, so five years later, they tested the same children, now aged 8 to 10, and 32% of them tested in the creative genius category. I wonder if there's going to be a pattern. What if we go older? Five years later, they tested again, only 10% scored in the creative genius category. And let's go to us. In tests of over 200,000 adults that they did over the age of 25, only 2% scored in the creative genius category. So what's happening here? Is this a parallel at all to our gradual dislike of school that uh, you may have heard about in some other schools? I'm sure it doesn't happen in years where first graders come in curious and ready to learn about anything and everything and they are uh, shaking, they're ready to go to school. And then in middle school, you know, it's prison. And in high school, we can't wait to live real life. Well, at least one thing I think is happening here that we're going to call reason number two students don't like school is that curiosity is being stifled too much. How does this happen? All too often, thinking is done for them. So, of course, this is related to our first point. We tell them, just memorize this. You know, you come to school, hear the facts, learn it, go home, done. And after a while, they get tired of that. Just get it done. All too often, efficiency tends to trump creativity. Now, there are good times for efficiency, but sometimes our school model is too much like a business model. You know, get it done. And as long as your homework's done, as long as the test's completed and put on the shelf, you skipped a couple answers, well, yeah, but, you know, we need to move on because the next period is coming up, etc. Another way curiosity is stifled is when their questions aren't on our lesson plan. All too often it's not about them, it's about me. I came in with my uh, ten sweet points and I'm going to go over them and I don't care what you think or say or whether you're even interested in the points. So we need to have space to explore their questions in order for them to learn. They might spend uh, half the period thinking about their question instead of your question. 
we need to think of ways for our questions to become their questions or for them to take ownership of our questions. Uh, I'm not suggesting that we totally uh, make school all about their questions. You know, you come in today, hey, what do you want to learn today? Okay, it's, it's you, you want to learn about tiddlywinks, so we'll spend a day doing that. But I'm suggesting flexibility in our lesson plans so that they have a chance to explore their questions. And all too often, it's not rewarded. Grades are the only thing that counts. So if I'm curious about what makes um, something tick, well, there's no space or time for me to do it because we have to cover the material so that I get a good grade, so that we go on and I end up having my curiosity killed because uh, I didn't get a chance to explore my question. So, we sh what can you do about it? We should encourage curiosity. Our curiosity is provoked when we perceive a problem we believe we can solve. So be sure there are aha moments because each one is rewarded in the brain. You see, curiosity has an inherent reward. The pleasure pathways of our brain reward us when we've solved something successfully, much in the same way an addict is rewarded when he eats, drinks, or smokes again. So each time we have a rush of success, as it were, or a little high, the student is more likely, every time they have a moment of success, they're more likely to want to have another moment of success and to be curious enough to keep on going and to apply themselves and to learn more. So, it's your job to help make this happen more than to tell students everything he'll ever need to know. So I'm here, I'm your teacher, I'm going to tell you everything you need to know, just sit down and listen. It should be more our job to help them explore that and have aha moments to make connections. Aha! I see what you're talking about, and now I'm more likely to ask a question, to be engaged, to learn more. Speaking of asking questions, that's the next point. Some people call this inquiry learning. Of course, you can ask questions anytime, many times. We learn from Jesus that questions are a good way to teach. But inquiry learning in particular focuses maybe the whole lesson on a question. So instead of coming in and saying, students, today we are going to learn about tsunamis, which I think is really important for you to know because there was a bad one the other year. You heard about it in the news probably. You should care about God's world. We're going to learn about tsunamis. Get out your books, open to page 21, and get your notes ready to learn. But you could ask, what causes a tsunami? And if you get them engaged by having that discussion and exploring it, you have now introduced that today we are going to learn about tsunamis without saying today we are going to learn about tsunamis, which tends to be inherently boring when you say things like that. So, what causes a tsunami? And then that leads into the lesson, then you explore it, and then maybe you end up teaching. Maybe you say, okay, so this is what causes a tsunami, and you show them. Or maybe today you have chosen to get them to, you have some books on tsunamis, and you 
Uh, assign them to go read and explore and find out what causes tsunamis and come back and report to the class or to talk to each other or to think about it overnight or, or there are many options. Another way to encourage curiosity is to respect their questions. You know, that was a dumb question. Uh, isn't appropriate. And adjust your lesson plan to allow room for their questions. When they have the question is when they have the question. Now, yes, it's true. Sometimes we don't have time for it. It doesn't relate. And we do need to move on. But they will learn about you as a teacher in your general attitude. When they ask questions, do you respect their questions or do you always shoot them down because it's not what we're learning today, because it's not what's in the textbook that the, they bought for me to teach and this is what we're teaching today and you will listen. So they will learn quickly from your attitude. And if you are able to adjust your lesson plan, maybe you should at least consider it. And another point I have is allow alternative assessments. If someone, you always have the boy who was particularly curious about this aspect of what you were studying about and not so much what you were doing. So if he wants to learn more about it, maybe a chance to do that would be for him to do a project or a presentation instead of the test this time. And they will remember that and they will respect you if every once in a while this is allowed to happen. That they're given some chances to learn about what they want to learn about. I remember my teacher let me learn about what I wanted to learn about. So explore that some more if you're curious about it. Moving on to number three. Tests are the goal. Students don't like school all too often because tests are the goal. Maybe you can relate to this. Do we need to know this for the test? What do you feel like saying after you hear that? So, all too often, we find ourselves teaching to the test. Sometimes it's because of pressure from others, especially in our public schools no child left behind, et cetera, et cetera. We need to pass the test in order to get our funding so I don't lose my job. Or it could be pressure from other schools. We need to look as good as the school down the road. Or it could be pressure from the parents. If you don't make my child do well in the tests, well, so there are pres there's pressure from others. We also tend to have an assumption too often that knowledge equals facts. Sometimes knowledge is called that without understanding. Knowledge in the Western sense of the word it tends to be shallow. It doesn't transfer, and this is no secret. Uh, we hear about people getting out of school talking about, well, I know I learned that in school, but I don't remember it. You know, I, I know I learned that, but I wouldn't be able to tell you, okay? So, did you learn it? Someone going beyond that, and someone may even be able to recall something without knowing why, if they, even if they do remember it, or being able to describe how to use it or understand its implications. 
So, some of the things that really matter in life can't be tested, or at the very least, they're hard to test in a classroom. So, we should test the tests. I'm not suggesting that we throw tests out the window, but that we think about our tests. The first point here is look beyond A's and B's. Grades aren't the ultimate determination in life. Students don't like to be labeled. Tests, especially in our public school system, which sometimes we copy, tests can herd them like cattle into one track or another, and they end up there for the rest of their life. What do I mean? Well, the man who started Khan Academy, if any of you ever heard of that, he uh, puts clips on uh, YouTube for people to watch in order to learn. He got this whole thing, which is now a popular thing. It all got started because his niece failed her placement exam for sixth grade math. And she was devastated because she, was, she generally got A's, she was a good student, but she failed the exam because she had a problem with unit multipliers. But in her system, this meant she would now be tracked in the dumber math class which meant that she would not be able to take such and such by grade such and such, which means by grade 12 she wouldn't be able to take calculus and she would be forever dumb and you know behind all her peers and her parents wouldn't be able to get her into the Ivy League, etc. So he ended up tutoring her and her school allowed her to retake the test and she passed and that changed her life. All too often we label students, you're dumb because you're a B or C or D student. And they don't like that. So let's be careful in labeling them. I suggest that we devalue assessments. Now maybe that sounds strong to you, but basically what I mean here is don't teach to the test, don't depend on the test as the ultimate be all because students can outsmart us. They can cheat. The tests may not be accurate, depending on what they ate for dinner the day before. They are helpful tools, but printed tests should not be the climax of Christian education. So, put this in your own words, maybe something like, don't worship test results. Vary your assessments. Explore new formats, varieties, replacements. Don't always use the same test format. If you want some interesting reading sometime, read the history of the multiple choice test, which is known around the world as the American test. It's basically a recognition exercise and really doesn't measure higher reasoning, but when you get into other fields, such as firefighting, for instance, this is how we measure whether someone can pass the national written exam. You know, I, I took a test one time in firefighting. It was 100 questions, multiple choice, and that's it. And now I'm a good firefighter, okay? Good. You know, it can be an indicator, but this is related to uh, the addiction to credentials in our society. You know, if I passed more tests, I'm a better person and supposedly more qualified than someone else. And we all really know deep down that this isn't true. After all, we don't judge a driver just based on the score of his driver's test, we judge by his driving. So recognize that knowledge has varying levels, and so 
maybe various grades can be helpful. Sometimes I give effort grades instead of um, always an academic grade on a little writing assignment. Uh, how hard did you try on this? Um, and there are different ways to grade conduct, score, effort, academics, etc. Or um, in when you set up, some of you might set up your course syllabus and you might have part of the grade for the course depending on class participation. You see things like that sometimes on syllabuses. Um, uh, college professors often put uh, class attendance in there, whether you've actually showed up. And so there are different ways to measure students than just uh, how smart they are, because students will know and remember if you tend to judge them just by their test scores. And number four, too many facts. Facts are not the goal, especially in the 21st century. At the time, most of the textbooks that many of us are still using were written. Who would have dreamed of being able to access virtually all of the information in the world via the internet from anywhere out in the far side of the desert? Can you dream of the day in a few decades when knowledge will be wirelessly downloadable to your brain? No, don't believe me. Okay, fine. Well, who believed that the first computers, which were the size of a living room, would someday be so small that they're handheld devices that can do more in one device than we ever dreamed of several decades ago? Today, the average birthday card, including the one my daughter got for her first birthday, that when you open it up, it sings and says, Happy birthday to you. Okay. Has more computing power in that birthday card than the early computers did that took up a whole living room. Things are changing drastically in our world today. You see, what employers want today are people who can think cri critically, creatively, and collaboratively. And what our churches, and ultimately the world impacted through the church, needs are people who can think and love meaningfully. So facts are not the end goal. Facts are a part uh, along the way. Because a fact is just a fact until it's put into the context of story. Uh, factual knowledge must precede skill. Now, I'm not suggesting that we jump, dump facts, but rather that it's inherently more enjoyable to work with facts than to just memorize them. So, a lot of students are probably bored um, or don't enjoy memorizing all the books of the Bible. Okay, well, maybe it is pointless. If a digital device could look it up for you faster if your only purpose is in order to find it. But if your purpose is to find meaning in the organization of the books and to know about the Bible, so for instance, we have the books of Moses together because that's a story. And actually, the whole Bible is one story, you see. But sometimes when we study it, we chop it up into 66 or even more hundred pieces. And students have trouble seeing how it all fits back together. So facts by themselves don't mean much until they're put into a context and we help them 
understand that concept and that they can conceptualize the relationship. With the, if they can conceptualize the relationship among the facts, not only will they have more understanding, but it will actually make it easier to memorize those facts. It's easier, people have done experiments with sequences of numbers, it's easier to remember numbers, say a telephone number or numbers in a certain sequence that have meaning than it is uh, random numbers and same thing with letters. Speaking of books, I'm sure there will be some of us later in this century printing our own books and keeping the printed page alive like some people still make their own buggies. Uh, and these books will be expensive unless the whole economy collapses, in which case they'll still probably be expensive and then maybe we'll just go back to butchering chickens and worrying about where our next meal comes from. But my point is we are living in a great transition from oral to scrolls to books to digitized media and it happens gradually. It's not happening overnight. And Mennonites will be, I don't know, 25 years behind like they usually are, but it does affect us. It is happening in our society. So am I suggesting that we ditch books? No. But we do have another symptom of factual overload here called textbook fatigue. And this is not a term I coined, but one most students feel and many teachers tend to slide into this, into just teaching the textbook, because it's easy, or it's all they ever knew, or they're overwhelmed with all the assignments that your school board gave you to teach, etc. But textbooks should be a tool versus the teacher. They should be a tool, not the teacher. What I mean is, some teachers aren't any more than a breathing textbook. Now, of course, none of us, but our job is to personify the subject, not the text alone, to make connections to life and to bring many things into the classroom beyond the textbook. The textbook is only one of our tools. Our job is to make connections using the textbook and many other things in life and to bring it together. So the answer isn't to throw out the textbooks, but to think and teach beyond a textbook. Now, we should have always been teaching this way, and I'm sure you are, but we are being forced to more in the 21st century. Why? Because textbooks themselves are going to become victims of 21st century learning demands. I would argue that we need to teach this way beyond the textbook in order to defend to our students and everyone that technology can't just replace our teachers. Otherwise, maybe it can. We don't have a case for enjoying school, let alone having school, if all we are doing is something a computer program could do better. After all, we generally enjoy things that have meaning to them. If we can find meaning in them, the Nazis experimented with this, with uh, getting people in concentration camps to carry rocks over here, and then carry them back, and then carry them over here, and then carry them back, and they soon learned, you know, there's no point to this, and it really destroyed their self-esteem. Let's not do that to our students. Now, I'm not suggesting that we're Nazis, but maybe I am suggesting that sometimes our students feel like Jews. If we don't help them make connections to find meaning, 
in what they are learning beyond what a computer could explain. So there are fine computer programs to test reading comprehension. To You can read on the computer and it spits questions back at you and it can do that very efficiently. But computers can't explain, explore, and feel empathy. And we see in our society a lack of empathy. So more can bore. When we try to cover too much material, we end up boring our students and ourselves. Memory is the residue of thought. In order to remember, we need to have thoughts about our thoughts. And this leads to our solution of what to do about too many facts. Not to throw them out, but to spend more time processing. And we'll pick up there tomorrow. For more free resources that support teaching and learning, visit the docforlearning.org.